0: This is the Water Into Wine podcast. Over the coming weeks, I'm going to be describing a journey that I've been on over the past 12 years, telling you about how I started off as a non-believer in the spirit world and ended up as a believer. I'll give you all the clues you need to go and verify this for yourself and go and research for yourself as well, because I don't expect anybody to listen to what I say and just believe it. But I do want you to go and look for yourself because you'll find everything's there. Now, you can find the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and SoundCloud. Just search for Water Into Wine Podcast. Welcome to episode number nine of the Water Into Wine Podcast. Now, last week I started telling you about the Colburn Bible and the Great Great Pyramid at Giza, and I said that this week we'll take a better look inside the King's Chamber, inside the Great Pyramid. Now, the King's Chamber is approximately 10.45 metres long, 5.2 metres wide and 5.8 metres high and it's actually faced in a pink granite. Now, as we'll discuss in future podcasts, the pink granite gives off a slight radioactive feel, um, for want of a better word, as as all pink granite does. But we'll talk about that later. One of the shafts exiting the King's Chamber, because they've got two shafts exiting the King's Chamber and two shafts exiting the Queen's Chamber. One of the shafts exiting the King's Chamber points to the constellation of Orion's Belt. And this was always associated with Osiris, one of the Egyptian, an old, old, old Egyptian pharaohs. Orion's belt is the three stars that appear in almost, not quite, but almost a perfect line in the sky. You can see them every clear night from your own back garden. Now inside the chamber itself is a granite sarcophagus without a lid. Now a sarcophagus, just in case you don't know, is the Egyptian equivalent of a coffin although not always for the purpose of identifying the dead. They're normally highly decorated with gold because they were intended for the kings. Now, this sarcophagus inside the king's chamber weighs approximately 3.8 tonnes, as close as we can work it out, and is big enough inside for a man to lie down comfortably. Um, it itself is <laughs> its a fantastic work of art. It's been carved out of one solid piece of stone, And the inside is incredibly smooth. And even today, um, nobody knows how this was actually carved. Nobody's got a clue. Now, no markings have ever been found inside the Great Pyramid, except for those left by visitors and tourists scribing on the walls. Not that they should do, but, you know, they do. Yet inside every other tomb in in Egypt uh, that was built for a king's burial, the walls are highly decorated. However, the Great Pyramid, In the Great Pyramid, this chamber remains bare. Modern day visitors have reported feeling that they feel a huge um, physical or atmospheric pressure upon entering the king's chamber. Now the subterranean chamber, which is the lowest chamber out, out of the three inside the pyramid, is right down at the bottom of the pyramid. This gives the impression that when you see it, it hasn't been finished as if it had been stopped halfway through. It's actually commonly argued amongst the experts that the builders just simply changed their mind when when building it. And from the numerous pictures that I've actually seen, it seems that it would be almost impossible to get a sarcophagus down there at all, because there's a tiny little opening to get in. Now, the Great Pyramid is clearly, uh, very clearly, an amazing monolith. But, as spoken about in an earlier podcast, it's staggeringly little understood in the post-Christian era. This is very very strange given that the two are so closely related it's reminiscent of having a black sheep or a shameful uncle about about which there's a bit of a taboo and everyone hushes it up outside of the pyramid you'll find the sphinx now he stands proudly in front as if as if keeping guard over the three pyramids in actual fact the icon of a lion was seen and used as a guardian and often found watching over the entrances to temples but not tombs. I don't know of any Egyptian tomb that had a temple outside because they used to hide the tombs underground. So tomb robbers didn't know where they were because they were full of treasures, the king's treasures, the king's gold and sometimes his, his slaves were put down there as well. But there was never anything outside a tomb. That's what makes me think more than anything else that this is no way is this a tomb. But it is a temple. It's some form of religious ritual ground and the Colbrinette Bible actually goes down that route with it and I'll tell you more about that a little bit later on so this would uh, occur with the account that the pyramid of Giza is is a temple but not a tomb in the book that I wrote a few years ago I've got a picture of the Sphinx here and the head of the Sphinx seems to be slightly smaller in scale than the rest of the body. Now, it gives you the impression that the head has been recarved, And the general opinion is that it was originally a lion's head to match the body, and it was recarved to pacify the ego of an Egyptian pharaoh. Now, if this was true and the head had be- originally been a lion's, it would make sense because the Sphinx faces due east, so it watches the sun rise every morning, as do the pyramids. The shaft in the king's chamber points to a star constellation of Orion's belt, and is associated with Osiris and the s- shaft in the queen's chamber points to the star Sirius which was associated with Isis Osiris's wife in a parallel manner the sphinx points towards the star constellation of Leo the lion in the sky now last time all three of these constellations and planets lined up at the same time uh, in exact perfection with their relating stars as was intended was 10,500 BC. Some experts have even said that due to the weathering patterns along the side of the Sphinx, they believe it could have been carved during the last ice age in about 10,500 BC. Now, this sounds very plausible, but other experts date the pyramids to only 2,500 BC, and others uh, have even dated the Sphinx, specifically the Sphinx, to 1,500 BC. Arguments rage about this, they really do, um, academics scream at each other, even today, about this issue. And it sometimes breaks out into newspapers, some of the arguments. So, let's consider our elementary discoveries. Nothing about the interior of the pyramids reflects or suggests similar functions of known burial chambers. Nothing at all. Now, supposing we were to take this evidence at face value and propose that pyramids are not, in fact, burial chambers at all, then what are they? Now, the three pyramids at Giza are almost, but not quite, in an exact line. The pyramids were built to such amazing specifications that it can't be a design fault. It's just impossible for that to be a design fault. Nobody's just, their ruler hasn't been slightly off to one side when they built them. No way, no way at all. Every other geometric calculation on the sighting and dimensions are extremely precise, as I just said. Now, Robert Bouval described in his book called The Orion Correlation Theory, when he he stated that if we look at the planets at which the shaft in the king's chamber points, Orion's belt, then we can see that there are three stars in alignment, one small star, one medium star, and one large star, making a a not-quite-exact line in the sky. Now, if we look at the entire Giza plateau from the sky, we can see that these three pyramids appear, appear to be exact copy of Orion's belt. In Orion's belt, it's the smallest star that's only slightly out of line, and lo and behold, if we look at the pyramids, it's also the smaller pyramid that replicates this positioning. So, what do you think? A coincidence? The fact is that the pyramids at Giza are a mirror image on Earth of the constellation of Orion's belt in the sky above. There are more than just three pyramids at Giza, though, that correspond to other astral affinities. Now, basically, when you map this out, the pyramids in Giza are a star map built on Earth. The phrase of the Emerald Tablet, as above, so below, now comes to mind. As I've mentioned the Emerald Tablet in one of the previous podcasts. Now, in the world's greatest ever building project by a pre-Christian civilization, or since, The intrinsic design plays a lot more lip service to this mantra. It embodies it with astonishing, mind-boggling clarity and enormous humility. Governments have spelt billions of taxpayers' money all over the world investigating the possibility of life on other planets, all with the same result. Nothing. And yet, here's evidence of an early civilization much more in tune with the universe than we've been any time since the Nicene Creed was published in 325 AD. We've been so handicapped by the Christian de-emphasizing of of astronomy, its almost laughably simple cosmology has turned us into a kind of idiot, really. We've been dumbed down. Now, the stars and planets have been, since the very ancient beginnings of man and civilization, a source of great wonder and focus of thousands of years of study. Yet, we almost lost that sense of wonder and mystery the moment Christianity was imposed upon us. To the ancient minds, the stars were a kind of spiritual roadmap to a higher consciousness and a way of not only understanding the cycles of life on Earth, but also some of its disasters. The skies were also the realms of the gods. Many people, especially non-Christian people, still take some kind of religious or spiritual interest in the, in the astral movements. Some of us are convinced by our horoscope. Shaman, especially those taking drugs that connected them to their subconscious mind, Will have been very impressive oracles when their predictions concurred with observable phenomena in the heavens. An echo of this can be observed in the heralding of Christ's birth by an astral conjunction of a signal star. Christianity may, thus, have proved us with a compelling story about a constellation of stars and the birth of a stonemason, but this tale doesn't begin to comprehend the sophistication of the astronomical and astrological speculations of the many, many generations of religious thinkers who preceded and laid the foundations for Christianity. In this light, it's not so surprising that pre-Christian thought was considered an extremely sophisticated alternative to Christianity. It was not a case of Neanderthals dancing around a fire in bearskins, but, instead, a, a, a manner at the heart of almost every religious account of life. Perhaps Constantine was not so very eccentric in wanting to reconcile the two systems of belief on almost equal terms in his creed of 325 AD. At the very least, paganism had, within its terms of reference, and not to mention the canvas of the night sky, the wherewithal to continue to give grounds for great wonder and even offer spiritual harmony for those believing in its practices. Its legacy will have been integral to the ruling classes, because that kind of metaphysics underpins society's hierarchies. For any ruling class, the drug-taking shamanistic tendency will have been embedded both as a habit and as a right. It's interesting to note that hippies from the 60s were basically middle and upper middle class. The working class varieties were often called drug addicts. And just because Christianity offered an appealing spiritual code of its own kind, with a sympathetic face to the political regime of the ruling classes, it doesn't mean that paganism died out overnight. In fact, its appeal is likely to have remained all the more potent, as a populist religious code took hold in the lower social orders. If that wasn't enough to guarantee drug-taking as the dirty secret at the heart of the establishment, Christianity owed much of its own religious certainty to the truths revealed by ancient Egyptian practices of its kings, as they became pharaohs, as they endured their massive narcotic episodes. In 1996, an engineer called Tom Danley measured the dimensions of the king's chamber and the five or so-called relieving chambers above it. Now, it might help at this particular point if you get uh, an image up on Google of the the king's chamber, because you'll see what I mean by relieving chambers. They're called relieving chambers because basically the weight bearing down on the king's chamber is so huge that the unusual shape acts as an aid to spread its weight so that it doesn't crush the king's chamber. When you see the picture at the top, the the image at the top of the king's chamber, which is, um, it's almost like a set square. Now that sign is very, very, very important. Go and look at... 95% of churches, and you'll see that sign over the top of the door as you walk in. You'll see that sign again on top of obelisks. You'll see that shape and that sign again over the top of Jesus. Remember I was telling you in a previous podcast, some churches have got Jesus outside with a roof over his head or just the sign over his head, a shape. That's the shape. That is the shape where the kings went from being kings to pharaohs that's above their head it represents a rebirth which is why it's in churches this is one of the most commonly used christian symbols today in churches i'm talking about anyway back to danley danley installed amplifiers and speakers in the relieving chambers inside the king's chamber then he played sounds through them he measured the resonant frequencies inside Now, just in case you don't know, resonant frequency is the frequency at which something vibrates. Everything around us will vibrate if we hit the right note. This is quantum physics. Everything vibrates. Have you ever seen, for example, an opera singer shatter a glass by singing? Basically, the opera singer hits the resonant frequency with her voice of the glass so that it vibrates to the points at which it shatters. There's some fantastic videos on YouTube about this you actually see the shape of the glass change it becomes it looks like a solid glass to start with then they show they slow the video right down and the glass looks like it's made of rubber it contorts and shapes in a way that if you try to shape glass like this when it was in a, in a glass form you'd just shatter the glass but because they're using frequencies because frequencies are bombarding it becomes almost like a jelly go and have a look at the videos on youtube about this now the frequencies for example are measured in hertz by a spectrum analyzer tom danley's experiments found that a frequency of 16 hertz was produced inside the king's chamber human hearing starts at about 20 hertz so this frequency is below our hearing range which would explain why people say they feel an eerie feeling when they go in the chamber remember I told you before at the start of this podcast they feel like there's a pressure that's because it's 16 hertz that they're feeling a 16 hertz frequency is what we call a subsonic frequency now we only feel the presence of this note we can't hear it have you ever wondered for example um, when watching one of the ghost hunting programs on tv where the presenters are in either a cave or a building next to a motorway and They say, oh, you get a really eerie feeling in this place. Or, when I walked in there, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up, they say. You may even have felt this yourself. This is sometimes caused by a subsonic frequency that you can't hear, but can be measured by the right equipment. Another example of our capacity to harmonise with frequencies can be observed if one stands too close to a speaker at a party the vibration of which in, introduces a very physical reaction to our trousers or even our underwear, our skirt or whatever we're wearing. Danley pointed out that the size of the chambers, the materials from which they were made, and the sizes of the pyramid's shaft made it an amplifier of a kind. Now, just uh, I'm being a little bit silly here, crossing the T's and dotting the eyes, an amplifier takes a smaller noise and makes it loud, it amplifies it. He believed this note was initiated by the outside air blowing across the shafts on the face of the pyramid, which in turn resonated a column of air that could be felt in the chambers inside the structure. Now, it would be much like blowing across the top of a bottle, for example, and depending on how much liquid is actually in the bottle, or in this case, how much stone is in the chamber, the physical context would determine the frequency of the note produced. Now, inside the Queen's Chamber and the Subterranean Chamber, they also produce notes in a similar way. Rather like wind power today, this would only work if the wind were actually blowing, and it often wasn't. When I stumbled across the Pyramid Code uh, by Carmen Bolter, I found out that the River Nile used to, if you get a chance, by the way, watch the Pyramid Code by Carmen Bolter. It's on YouTube. Uh, It's about five one-hour um, programs and they're absolutely fascinating. Carmen, uh, Carmen's actually a friend of mine on on Facebook, and she is an amazing woman. What this woman doesn't know after 25 years of research in the pyramids is not worth knowing. Anyway, going back to the Pyramid Code by Carmen Bolter, I found out that the River Nile used to flow across the front of the causeway directly in front of the pyramids, and that was as recently as a hundred years ago. Now. I realise a new possibility since the pyramids were built on limestone, which is porous, and through which flowed water. The resulting subterranean activity would have created a very low frequency note that was constant day and night. It's interesting to recall as well that the ancient Egyptians understood that sound could heal the body, believe it or not in our supposedly more sophisticated civilization we're just beginning to conduct research that supports the same hypothesis the college of sound healing website which is all over the web you can go and look at this for yourself it lists some of the benefits of sound healing and it includes an instantaneous deep relaxation a sense of unification and importantly an altered state of consciousness Could this altered state be the same state that the tribal shaman experienced with the aid of natural hallucinogenic drugs? And if so, had the Egyptians built not merely a vast monument that paid homage to certain stars, but which was a magnificent sound chamber, perfect for contributing to a state of altered consciousness? Carmen Bolter, who's a PhD from the University of Calgary, by the way, has been investigating the pyramids for some time. Her view is that the Material from the Pyramid of Giza, from what it's made, as well as where it was built, help it to explore the natural energy of the earth. The inner core of the pyramid is made of dolomite limestone. Now, this type of limestone has a very high magnesium content and therefore conducts electricity. The outer casing was made from Tura limestone, which has no magnesium content, and because of its colour, is closer to calcium carbonate therefore, is a very poor conductor of electricity. Now, as I told you in a previous podcast, this outer casing was removed many years ago. The inner passageways inside the Great Pyramid are lined with pink granite, and this stone is slightly radioactive, as I mentioned before in this podcast, and therefore ionizes, slightly electrifies the air held inside the pyramid. Putting it another way, the pyramid has been built to perform the function of an electrical wire with an insulation on the outside. In effect, and whatever other purpose it served, the Great Pyramid was like a giant spark plug. Carmen Bolter confirms that the pyramid is built on porous, water-bearing limestone, or aquifers, as they're more commonly known. Now, if you pass water that's been in contact with direct sunlight through an aquifer, it generates a small electrical current. Very small, but it definitely generates a current. Now, as a result of their findings, Bolter contends that the pyramid draws electrical current from the water running through the porous limestone, and not only amplifies it, but also focuses it at the point at the top where the capstone was once placed. Bolter's research also contends that in the monolithic sites all over the world, more light anomalies appear in photographs taken there than anywhere else on Earth. These circular balls of lights, known as orbs, which is how we started the podcast because I was getting orbs turn up in photographs, you remember? They're often described as balls of energy. So could these orbs actually be natural energy escaping from the monoliths at these sites? Did the Egyptians know how to exploit a clean energy derived naturally from the earth? And if they did, what did they use it for? Are these orbs the same orbs that mediums have been telling us about for centuries? In 1847, Sir William Siemens visited the site of the Great Pyramid and decided to climb it. He took with him an Arab guide. Once at the top, Siemens stood still and heard a slight ringing in his ears, so he decided to conduct some very simple tests. The first was to raise his right arm above his head and point his index finger towards the sky. While doing this, he reported a tingling feeling in his finger. Then he tried to take a drink from a metal cup that he had with him when he touched the cup he got an electrical shock now for the last test he improvised a makeshift laden jar which just in case you don't know i didn't i had to look it up is a device for the storage of static electricity by adapting a wine bottle and wrapping it in a damp newspaper he then witnessed sparks coming from the bottle at this point, his Arab guide tried to pull the bottle out of his hand and got a huge electric shock. And you've got to remember, that was right the way back in 1847. We all think of electricity as a relatively new invention, and hardly any of us, us realise its earliest common mention dates back to not only the 19th century, when we first found a use for it, but to 600 BC. This first recorded instance of electricity was by a Greek philosopher, Thales of Miletus who wrote about the resulting effect when some amber fossilised tree resin, that is, was rubbed. We know this effect today as static electricity. Ancient cultures may not have given us the word for electricity, but they knew it existed. Some of them may even have devised means of harnessing its effects. Having been very surprised by Sir William Siemens, I wasn't, however, even ready for the book The Lost Journals of Nikola Tesla. Just in case you don't know anything about tesla he was born on the 10th of july 1856 in serbia he was an electrical engineer and was most famous for his research in electromagnetism now the invention that made him famous was ac current which is the current that comes out of your electrical sockets in your house or flat the reason this was so famous is because he discovered that he could send this type of current through thousands of miles of cables and only lose a small percentage of it by doing so. It was while inventing this that he realized that the lost percentage of electricity must go somewhere. But where? He perceived that cables leak electricity into the air, depending on the type of insulation they have. He speculated it might be possible to extract this same electricity out of thin air. Not only did Tesla prove that you can extract this electricity from thin air, but he also perfected a way of sending the electricity wirelessly through the air to a receiver. And, to prove his point, he built a structure that did precisely that. And that's where we're going to leave this week's podcast. That was number nine. Uh, next week we've got number eight, and I'm going to tell you about the Tesla Tower, Warden Cliff Tower, um, also known as Tesla Tower. In 1901 to 1917 it was built. You can actually research a little bit about it and get a few pictures up on in front of you for next Sunday night's um, podcast when I when I upload it but what I'm actually doing with this podcast is I'm I'm closing doors along the way as such I'm showing you my journey into proving that the spirit world exists and these are the steps that I actually took to get that journey to an end I can't just tell you the ending because it wouldn't stand any any weight without understanding everything that's gone in between it's like telling the punchline to a joke. It doesn't make it a joke. It's not funny. You have to understand the joke to get the punchline. And this is exactly what I'm trying to do now. So if the, if the podcast seem a little bit long-winded, that's the reason why. I hope you have a fantastic week. I really do. And I'll speak to you again next week. Thanks for listening.